It's episode 61 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is design system advocate, Gina Ann. She's spent 15 years designing for companies like Apple, Salesforce, and Amazon. And today, we're going to discuss how design systems are as much social as they are technical, and why we should think of them as communities and not just projects. Gina, thanks for being on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, and you know what? It was good to see you in Australia. We're doing that thing where we do the sort of, you know, the, the humble brag of like, oh, yeah, I was in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. And, <laughs> but, it was, yeah. uh, but we did both have the opportunity to speak at this conference and it was, uh, and I thought it was great. Yeah, it was really, um, I, I, I liked how they had the two events back to back, one for leaders and then one about product design practice in general. Like, it was a pretty good format. Yeah, this was Web Directions, uh, which is a conference kind of series, I guess, that has been going on in Australia for a long time. Um, I think I spoke at the first one in 2005, which is shockingly like 14 years ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it is uh, there's a good community over there. There's a lot going on. They do a, like a technical um, conference, and then a more this one more of design and leadership, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, anyway, you gave two talks on uh, kind of your journey through the system uh, or through the through your career and things like that, as well as then talking about kind of where things are with design systems. And I thought, you know what? We haven't talked about design systems for a while here on the podcast, and maybe we should do that again. So, again, thanks for being here. No problem. I went and looked back uh, at the archives uh, of, this, of this podcast, and it was uh, – Stanley Wood, who's the uh, d- a designer over at Spotify, who's now actually head of user experience of Volvo, which I think is super interesting. Uh, but we were talking to him about design systems uh, in August of 2016, which God, to me almost feels like the 1950s. It, like it was a simpler <laughs> time back then. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not that long ago, but wow, a lot has happened since then. Um but that was a good conversation, uh, and it is something I think that always resonates with people who are practicing today. Um, I don't know. Like, where's your – you – why don't you just tell me a little bit about sort of how you got into kind of a, a building and organizing and advocating for design systems. Um, what's, what's the journey been like? Sure. Um, so I went to school initially for graphic design, mm. but I was tinkering with – HTML and CSS. And I guess at some point I realized, wait, I can merge these two things and just go more towards web. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually got an internship. Um, The professor that was teaching the web design class, um, you know, recognized that I was already proficient. And so he actually hired me on at his agency as an intern. And my first project I was doing for them was a website for the American Contract Bridge League. It's like, you know, the game bridge. The card game bridge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Apparently there's a bridge league. (laughs) And so they had hired an outside agency to do the CSS, and I was supposed to just help fill in content and Mm. do little bits and pieces there. But they, um, they couldn't get the site to look right in all the different browsers that they needed to support. And so they actually fired that outside agency and asked me if I could do it. And me being the, you know, very ambitious intern was like, sure, yeah, absolutely, I can do it. Um, and what was cool is as part of that project was um, I was 
told about style guides and like, oh, you know, we document the branding, um, the guidelines, but we also want to document the CSS. And so that was actually my first style guide was 2004 as an intern. And I was doing it in Quark. <laughs> Wait, you're using Quark Express to make a web-based style guide. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I mean, we weren't putting it online. So we, you know, had to reflow the pages if we ever wanted to add or remove sections. Like it was not a good process. But I actually found I really enjoyed doing it because it made me think through why I was doing things the way I was doing it and having to explain why the code was the way it was and all that. Um, yeah, yeah. So who was the audience <laughs> for that document, though? So you, this is like a just a bridge association that's having you build a website. Yeah, so I, I think the agency was going to give it to the client so that Got they it. could... Um, by the way, I live downtown, so you might hear fire trucks going by occasionally. I don't know if the mic picks it up. Ambience. It's all nice. It's great. <laughs> yeah. You're out in the world. Um, you're <laughs> yeah. So I think we were just going to hand it over to that client to then, you know, carry forward on mm. their own. Um, I don't know if they, you know, I don't know how long that lasted or, or um, how long that was in play because, I, you know, I was only there for the duration of my internship. Sure, sure, but, sure. Um, fast forward to a couple other agencies I, I worked at doing mostly branding guidelines. Um, but then when I was at Apple, I was doing HTML and CSS for the online store. And we had to, um, basically re-architect the whole thing because they were still using a table-based layouts, spacer gifts. Uh, it was Wait, only so 600. Sorry, this was for the app store. Uh, for the online store. Oh, for so Apple Store, right, where they're the selling e-commerce. the products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, How'd you get that job? I'm curious. Yeah, so I, it's kind of a funny story. I, um, you know, Flickr was really big back then. Sure, sure. And I just followed this guy named Farouk Atesh who um, took really nice photos. And he was in the same circle of friends that I had online that was like, you know, Dan Rubin and Jeremy Keith and mm -hmm. all these guys. So he was in that circle of friends. And so I just kind of added him and he added me back. Um, I guess we just became friends through that. And then he would ask me questions through um, AOL Instant Messenger <laughs> <laughs> um, about, you know, uh, everything from CSS to how to use Illustrator. And what I... I I think I thought he actually needed help. And it turns out he was actually testing me. Because yeah. <laughs> then one day he he said, oh, by the way, I hope you're cool with it. But I gave your info to my boss. And I think we're going to see if we can have you come in for an interview. And I was at work at one of the agencies I was working at. And so I was like, oh, uh, hold on a second. And I go outside and do like this whole jumping up and down thing. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it was for a team at Apple. And it was Kind of funny because just a week or two before that, I was telling people I wanted to move out to um, the Silicon Valley area, and then this happened like two weeks later. I was just like, "Well, here's here's my opportunity." Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. So, um, and I actually, I actually didn't think I was going to get the job because it was for an engineering organization, mm. and I'm a designer, um, and they asked me all sorts of engineering questions that I just was like, I have no idea, but I could look it up for you. And, um, but the CSS part of the, the interview I did well. In, and so they ended up hiring me and, 
yeah, so I'm doing HTML and CSS for the store, but then they were remodeling basically the entire site. I don't know if you remember back then, everything was like 640 pixels wide. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were widening um, the screens and modernizing it, moving to web standards. Um, that job actually taught me a lot about thinking not just page by page, but really thinking about things as a system. Mm. Um, because not only was I working on HTML and CSS for a site, but that site has so many variations, like regional variations, country variations, B2B variations, mm -hmm. education. You know, like if you go to a school, you'll have a special link to a instance of an Apple store online that's right. like customized for your school. All sorts of stuff like that and just trying to scale things out to all these like hundreds of stores. Just an outrageously complex system. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, since I'd done a few style guides in the past, I, I was like, this should be in a style guide. Um, but back then, uh, I, I think I had done it on WordPress, like an internal install of WordPress because yep. I wanted to put it online, but I didn't have, I didn't have like access to the production code base to pull in any style. So it wasn't, you know, what we call a living style guide mm -hmm. that we say today, but it was online and, and shareable. That now, was cool. When you say living style guide, I'm just like, well, let's take a little divergence here. Uh, you mean <laughs> that there is actually a connection between, say, code in production and what shows up when you go to a website that shows the design system guidelines? Yeah, so the... You know, I was taking screenshots right. of things and posting it instead of putting actual coded um, examples. And so when you have like actual coded examples, that's usually what people are, are talking about when they say living style guides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So so this was then really just like essentially a series of blog posts and pages, right? On a, on a WordPress install right. that, that says like, at the time of launch, here's what we got. Here's what you should do. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then, so that was um, supposed to be a collaborative effort. And I found that I was the only one working on it. Um, so well, what, that, what was the I, team? I, I, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just curious what no, the team okay. was like. Um, you have a set of developers, a set of designers. You were kind of in the middle and maybe doing some of the CSS. Like what was, what was the dynamics there? How big was that team? Uh, I was on what was primarily front end. So it was um, maybe, I think it was about five people, if I can recall correctly. Mm -hmm. um, HTML and CSS people, one guy that was super strong on JavaScript, the manager, this woman on the team that was more of a backend engineer, but was good at making all the pieces work together. So she, that's the role she took. Um, I think I was the only designer on the team, but I was not given a design role. And so my design outlet at the time was that style guide. And I was a little frustrated, I have to be honest, because I, you know, I studied design. I consider myself a designer, but I was on an engineering team. Right. And I would receive all these beautiful designs by another team that had all these designers on it. And I had to basically build it. Um, so I actually did switch teams at some point um, I after 
you know, getting a little frustrated with that. And so then now I was on the design team, which they had two to, uh, two design teams, actually. One was more of the, what they called Marcom, so marketing mm-hmm. communications, product launches, the big splashy, big hero images on the site. And our team was more of, if you know, kind of the, the, the structure and the Chrome and the UX. And so the containers and things that all that stuff would get put into. Got it. So on that team, it it was interesting because it was mostly interaction designers and then two visual designers. So I was one of two visual designers. So it was still almost like a production-based role because I would receive these wireframes and then Photoshop um, the designs to look pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for that role, I actually created a whole different style guide because it was more about like, wow, I think I've designed this jelly blue button 20 times this week. Why am I doing this? Right. (laughs) And so I made um, a little style guide for that as well. Um, And that one, because of the, just the nature of what the team was comfortable with, I believe I was actually using, I think I was using a combination of Photoshop and InDesign for that, (laughs) which probably sounds wild, but (laughs) that's just what made sense at the time. So that was still just, again, just a static document that the team yep. would use as yep. a reference, hopefully, right? Yeah. Um, so then it wasn't until I, like, after I had left Apple, I was at another agency. And then I went to a company called Engine Yard. And they were basically hiring their first designers. It was me and another guy. And... um you could kind of tell by looking at the app at the time that they hadn't had any designers before. And so what I did, because everything was pretty much designed directly in code, um, I basically spent a week uh, refactoring the CSS and documenting it. Mm. And I actually did it in the app itself. And so I was doing it directly in the code, using the code and um, making the style guide living. And that's like the first time that I did a living style guide. And I was like, oh my gosh, why have I been doing it any other way than this? All right. We have a new sponsor this week uh, and it's our friends over at Moo. Uh, You have probably heard of Moo, but on the off chance that you haven't, you have almost certainly uh, been handed a business card made uh, by Moo because they are just everywhere and they have been for a long time. Uh, Moo offers premium print products Uh, That includes business cards, but also postcards, notebooks, all sorts of stuff. And they deliver them around the world to very happy customers. So you probably know that no matter what your job is, networking is an important part of kind of any career. It's whether you're a designer or like a novelist or even CEO, you don't want to get caught out by not having a business card at that crucial moment when you're meeting somebody. So you can be prepared and show your creativity at the same time by having your own business cards made with Moo. See, uh, what I love about Moo is that great design is at the heart of everything that they do. There is nothing 
like a slick, well-made business card to make a first impression. Now, not only are they super easy to design and order with their online interface, but Moo business cards offer all the special touches. Like if you want gold foiling or spot gloss, uh, anything that can allow your artwork to really stand out. They have uh, great paper. You can get really thick or textured paper if that's what you want. Uh, everything that you need really for a high quality, memorable business card. Uh, it's great to see your work on the screen, right? And we spend all this time making these digital products, but man, it's really great to be able to hold something in your hands. So you can count on Moo to help you make this great first impression, whether you need a business cards, uh, for, you know, some meetings that you're going to or customize flyers for an upcoming event or even stickers or greeting cards or notebooks, postcards, whatever you need, uh, they got you covered. Moo's notebooks, for example. Oh, these are great. They're relatively new uh, offering. Uh, they're available both in soft and hardcover. Uh, you can customize them with your brand if you order more than 50. The hardcover notebooks have a really tough tactile cloth cover. Um, the soft ones are lightweight. They've got a sewn-in binding. They're gorgeous. Seriously, great quality. I've been carrying a, uh, one of these around for a couple of months now, uh, and i I feel really good when I pull it out at a meeting. I think it, they look fantastic. So uh, make sure you check out their collaboration with the graphic designer, Kate Morris, as well. Really, really high-quality stuff. So whatever you need, they've got you covered with their easy customization options. I remember Move from years and years ago. Oh, God, at least 10 years ago when I first met them. I was on a trip over to London, and I met the founder, Richard. And uh, and they had just come out with this amazing collaboration with Flickr where you could get business cards printed uh, in this interesting sort of like half-size format that were really kind of unique and stood out. And then you could have your Flickr photos printed on the back and every card could be different. And it was amazing. We hadn't seen anything like that. Uh, I've been so impressed with how they have grown that company over the past decade with this unrelenting focus on quality, uh, ease of use, uh, and just like design at the center of what they do. So... Um, you should try them, uh, get some business cards, get a notebook. You, you're not going to regret this. Uh, and if you order now, you can get 15% off. Uh, so go to moo.com. That's M O O.com. Use the code, the promo code print 15. That's P R I N T 15 at checkout. Once again, that's moo.com promo code print 15. Thanks to move for their support of presentable and all of relay FM moo. Let's get physical. <laughs> All right. So you had left Apple and you joined, what did you, I'm sorry, you said Engine Yard? Yeah, it was called Engine Yard. Got it. And, and tell me a little bit about what they did. Like what? Yeah. So it's, if you're familiar at all with Heroku, mm. it's kind of like that. Like Got it, it, it yeah. was um, cloud-based server host. Like I think they were one of the, to my knowledge, one of the pioneers in that space of doing everything in the cloud. Yeah. Um, the selling point was that, you know, you didn't need to hire a sysadmin person because Engineard could do all the things. You just like push some buttons and then everything <laughs> runs. So it was interesting doing that because I knew nothing about that and having to design for it. And, um, you know, cause I was also doing UX as well. Um, that was definitely an interesting challenge for me. Um, but it, I, like I said, I, I had that epiphany for myself of like, oh my goodness, like living style guides is the way to do it. And I did write a an article um, for their blog at that time about my process, which is totally outdated now. But 
at the time, I guess, um, kind of opened up some other people's eyes. And um, that's when I, I think I really started fully evangelizing it. I'd written about it before, but I think this is when I really like got out there and started speaking about it. Because I imagine that's not something that uh, you had a lot of opportunity to do while at Apple. I mean, those are the kind of in the Steve Jobs days too, right? Yeah. So yeah. intense secrecy, nobody speak, nobody says anything. You don't even you don't even tell anybody you work here, right? Oh man, there was a time where um, they were short on the Marcom side of having good front end people, and so I would get sequestered to go help out like all hands on deck, and I couldn't even tell my own manager what I was working on. Ah. <laughs> it was just so weird <laughs> wow wow what a great way to build a community of peers <laughs> so what are you working on none of your business <laughs> yeah uh it's been it's been uh it's been great to see apple kind of open up a little bit especially you know things around oh, yeah. their ai research and some of their privacy initiatives and stuff like that have people out speaking and, and things like that big change uh oh, more yeah. part of the community i appreciate that for sure and then just to kind of like just fast forward, I, you know, I'd been trying to do style guides at almost every job since, but it wasn't until my job at Salesforce where it was my job to mm. work on that. And um, that was like my dream. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe this is my job. This is like my favorite part. So <laughs> that was really cool. Now, did they have at Salesforce, did they have an existing uh, like design system initiative that you joined or is this something that you're sort of bootstrapping so just no pun um, intended <laughs> so they had a style guide which actually was what attracted me to that team but it wasn't in use it wasn't adopted um they had code that nobody was actually using other than maybe in some prototypes and part of it was just the the code was such a departure from how things were in production that the engineering organization wasn't really able to adopt it. Um, so we kind of took a pause on on that piece. But what we worked on very extensively for some time when I joined that team was uh, what became design tokens, and that's become a industry standard way now for design systems to scale uh, visual design or it doesn't have to be just visual. It could be motion and sound as well. Or, But basically storing your design in a way that scales across multiple platforms, multiple devices. Um, you know, we had native platforms. Uh, we have so many customers that build apps for the ecosystem that were maybe not even using the same technology stack that we were um, so it's basically a way of distributing name and value pairs, so like variables. Hmm. I think most most people use them as variables. And, um, you know, in some cases, that's all you need. But the, the whole design token arch architecture is about distributing those variables and morphing them into the right syntax that you need for whatever platform that it's targeting. Can you can you give me a really specific example? This is a little bit new to yeah. me. I, I haven't been following this too closely. And I just pulled up the lightning design uh, mm -hmm. uh, at develop, the developer site for the style guide. And I'm looking through design tokens here. And there's a lot of stuff here. Like there's Yeah. So, and that's because Salesforce is just so freaking big but <laughs> well sure so uh, uh, um, so let's say for example i want to use a like a, a heading right and and i want to set the font for that heading is that a good example of a 
of a of a like a design token or or am I is that not the right scale? I'll use a different example just because sure, sure. we pretty much just use one font everywhere. It's the same font, but um let's say color. Okay. So um basically if in your CSS, like this is going to be very familiar for anyone that's using SAS or CSS variables, but mm-hmm. instead of putting the hex value for the color, you put in the variable name and that points to the hex value. Got it. Um, what we would do is like take it further into an even um, more raw format where uh, we were using JSON at the time. Uh, we did move it to YAML, which we found was more designer friendly of a format. But mm-hmm. at the time it was JSON. So we would say um, color um, background button or something like that. And then that would point to um, an alias, which would be Salesforce Blue. And then that points to the hex value. And the reason we would do that two-tiered system was it it actually enables you to have your token names, which are semantically named, mm-hmm. be constants. And they, they always will be there in the CSS. Whereas what they point to is the more like disposable, changeable um, thing. But you you might still want that aliasing because maybe you have Salesforce Blue used in multiple places. Yeah. So um, it worked really well for us because at the time, if let's say Salesforce Blue was deemed to be not um, high enough contrast, I would have to tell the Android team, tell the iOS team, tell the all the different product teams what uh, that new value was. Got it. Where got it. now, because we had control of that. Um, basically library of values, I would change it, push it up. And then when those teams would pull in their, um, you know, whatever their build process is, they, they basically would just get it when they do a pull. And then I don't have to talk to all those people. Like it, they just get it. Yeah. And right, so right, right. Really makes it, it makes it really easy to scale very quickly and efficiently. Um, there's so many benefits to it. Like if, if I want to tell somebody how fast I want something to animate, I can call it by name instead of by how many seconds. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if I say duration quickly, then the dev just needs to know duration quickly and doesn't need to worry about exactly how many milliseconds. It is a sort of, of very compressed communication, really, between the team, yeah. right? Like it is yeah. it is a uh, almost a shared vocabulary. Like here's how we're going to talk about the design specifications uh, yeah. in, in a way that's not in a way that's not so brittle as saying yeah. like this should be twenty pixels and that should be you know one m or whatever like hmm that's really cool. I'm glad that we had spent the time doing that because then once we were ready to have an actual lightning design system and CSS framework, that infrastructure was already in place, and so it made it super easy to roll that out and then even. Um, widespread visual changes were just a breeze. And I honestly think that was a huge part of why it got adopted so well. And I have worked with teams where they think tokens are something that they'll add later when they have time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You want to do this now. Interesting. So uh, mm-hmm. you are sort of uh, approaching the, the advocacy sort of the internal advocacy topic, right? Like yes. you, you uh, <laughs> part of the success of the system was that it kind of spoke the native language of the people involved? Is that one way to think about it? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Like it, because we were able to distribute to all the different methods and ways that people needed that, you know, visual information, it, they were able to adapt it so quickly and, and easily that I didn't have to sell it. Like it just sold itself. Mm, interesting. Now, I'm, you know, as I'm looking through some of this documentation, it is still relatively technical stuff here, right? You're talking yeah. about uh, variables in um, in, a, in a sort of, it's not really a programming language, but essentially, right? Like a, a mm-hmm. language that you use to generate style sheets and stuff like that. On the spectrum of between, you know, pure design and pure development, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So you are kind of wearing both hats here and translating mm-hmm. back and forth and bringing designers to the table and showing them this kind of stuff. And I, I don't know, uh, in your talk, you you mentioned being kind of a hybrid. So I, I definitely consider myself a hybrid, but more on the design side of things, even though some of my work looks very, very technical. Um, I kind of look at it, as, at it as sort of like production of my design. And so I like having a job where I'm, I'm more in the middle. That's kind of you know, I mentioned the frustration I had at Apple when I was only on the engineering team. And then I had to switch to the design team. Um, It was like very siloed and almost waterfall in their approach at that time. They've probably changed it now, but at that time it was very waterfall. In this type of role of a hybrid, I feel like I'm closer to the actual experience users are going to see because I'm working directly in the code. Um, But I also... Because I'm a designer, I I can do it in a way where it actually looks the way it's supposed to look. Um, and then the people I talk to are engineers and designers. And it's kind of nice being able to speak both of their languages and try to unite it. Yeah. Do you think the success of design systems t- needs somebody like you in the middle? <laughs> I do. I really do. I know there are some companies that just have it under design or some companies that just have it under engineering. But I really truly believe just from the 15 years of doing this, like it's got to be a hybrid team. It could be, even if it's a virtual team and not a actual team, but it needs to be a hybrid team or, you know, have, have a significant amount of leadership from hybrid individuals on that team. Interesting. Interesting. I want to talk more about that, but let's take a little break here uh, for another sponsor. And that is uh, to tell you about our friends over at Abstract. They make design workflow management software for modern design teams. Uh, The way I like to think about this is that they've essentially created GitHub, but for design. It's amazing. Um, Look, more and more tech companies are realizing that design is a competitive advantage, right? But our tools and the workflows that we use with them just have not caught up to that thinking. So, You'll appreciate this if you're a designer. You know how frustrating it can be to search and export files from one tool over to another, trying to consolidate feedback from multiple sources, never totally sure what changes have been made, what's been approved, who's got what file. That's where Abstract comes in. It was founded by uh, an old friend of mine, Josh Brewer. He was the former uh, principal designer over at Twitter. Uh, And they've been working on this for uh, a couple of years now, and it's getting really, really good. It's a version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work. It brings... Uh, all the design workflow that you're doing into a single unified place for designers, developers, and even stakeholders to collaborate so that you can keep the work moving forward. Um, In just a couple of years, they've already got over 100,000 users. And that's 100,000 people who are spending less time searching for files and tracking down feedback and spending more time 
focused on making great stuff for their users. Companies like Intuit, Zappos, MailChimp, they all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflow and collaboration. Here's some of the stuff you can do with Abstract. You can version all of your design files. You can present your work. You can request reviews. You can collect feedback. You can give developers direct access to all the specs. You do it all from one place. So you can sign up your team for a 30-day trial. Uh, and you can do that today by going over to goabstract.com. Um, that URL, one more time, Go abstract.com for a 30-day trial. Look, thanks to our friends over at Abstract for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So uh, before, we were just talking about um, kind of like how, how you successfully got uh, implementation of the style guide or design system throughout Salesforce, which has to be kind of a remarkable achievement considering the size of that organization. I mean, it's enormous. It's the biggest building in San Francisco, after all. It's, <laughs> like, it's all you see now when you look at the skyline. But, but seriously, though, um, you talked a little bit about having hybrid teams and things like that. You think it's style guide, design system, like that all has to come from a, 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 a specialized team? As a, I, um, I mean, there's different models, right? Like, what, what, do you, yeah. what have you seen? Nathan Curtis actually wrote an article about team models where he talks about um, if you have like the overlord model where it's sort of, I think he used bootstrap as an example of this, but it's like, you know, maybe one or two people are working on this thing for themselves. And then it's like, you know, use it or don't use it. Um, but then he also talks about, uh, centralized teams, which are sort of in service of the organization and they work on the design system, um, as their job and, distribute it to mm -hmm. all the teams that need it. And then he talks about the federated model, which is where uh, people across the organization come together as sort of a virtual team and work on it together. Um, at Salesforce, we actually were a combination of the centralized team and federated contributors. So we had our team, which at the time was a very hybrid team, um, uh, you know, designers, developers, um, we also had people like specialize in accessibility and um, uh, prototyping and, and all that. So we had this team that um, basically maintained it and distributed it, designed it, um, automated it, you know, cataloging all the patterns and components. But then we tried to make sure that the ownership of that was actually shared in the UX organization. So a platform designer or some product um, feature designer could work with us to bring new patterns into the system that made, you know, if it made sense to bring it into the system. So we try to make sure that um, the, I think the, the way I like to put it is that the design system informs the product design, but then the product design in turn also informs right. the design system. So it's like the cyclical process. That's the thing, right? That's where it really does become a living thing where, yeah. Uh, at some point you have to, like, you can't, you can't design a thing and set it in stone and say, we're going to do this from now on. Like literally like the next mm -hmm. week, we're going to learn something new and we're going to want mm -hmm. to update our system. Yeah. And you know, the design system should never be considered this one time built thing and we can never deviate. Like it, you it shouldn't really make it should in Cork Express. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lesson learned, but um, yeah, like it, it really should be designed to change. And the, like, I think that's the beauty of a well, well-designed and, and developed 
design system is that it allows room for iteration and change and evolution. So there's the technical aspect of that where there's all these systems where you know you change code in the in production and it can propagate out or you know I'm sure there's lots of fancy ways of doing that today. I probably haven't kept up with much of them. Maybe you can explain them in a little bit. But there's also then that like change management is an insanely uh, social thing, right? It's it's a human thing to to. I, I've been through many organizational changes. I was a consultant for a while. Like we did all that kind of stuff and that's just a ton of work. Like what, mm-hmm. what, how, how do you keep people up to date? How do you convince them that this change is better than the one you had before? Like all of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a few different um, things in place. So the, the two major meetings that we had um, at the time the first one was what was called an advisory board. And that actually evolved from um, what we were initially doing was everybody on the team would hold office hours. And so people could come with systems related questions um, or, you know, propose new patterns. And then that person that they're pairing up with would, would give them guidance or suggestions or, or answer questions. But what we found with office hours was maybe I tell somebody something, but, you know, Brandon or Stephanie, who was on my team, didn't know that. And then they're telling somebody something else because mm. maybe they're at a different point in, in knowing what changed and what didn't change. So we switched it up to be an advisory board where um, we would get multiple people from our team there. And then we would bring in some of those federated contributors that I mentioned um, to also attend the meetings and that was a much better way to keep more people informed and shared that knowledge um, in a more like socialized way. And of course, taking notes um, so that anything that we discussed um, can be referenced later. So that was one of the key meetings that we had that was a little bit earlier in the process. Mm -hmm. We also had one that was further down the process called standards review. And that was where it was sort of the, the gut check of, you know, is this still implemented in a way where it's accessible, it's following our patterns, um, you know, it's it's vetted and, and all that. And so those were the two big meetings that we had. We also made use of all our communication channels. So um, Salesforce uses an internal, it's called uh, Chatter, and it, it kind of looks like Facebook, but it's like a feed. And so we had a feed for the design system. So we would put any changes or any updates there. And uh, internally on the UX team, we also had Slack. So we would post things in Slack. And then the whole company has access to this online dashboard where, you know, everything related to like payroll and uh, volunteering opportunity, like everything's in that dashboard. And Mm -hmm. so we had our own tile for the design system. And that basically led you to a page where you would see Here's the current release. Here's the last two releases. Here's the releases coming up. Um, here's, you know, what's new. Here's any changes made. And what was really fun was even working on, like, what that change log would look like. Like, not just saying, yeah, we added a button, but here's the actual tokens that changed. Here's the ah. actual classes that had markup that changed. Um, so it really is know, release notes. A, yeah, 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 but, like, super detailed. Super detailed, yeah. So you had a tile on the dashboard. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
How uh, I want to talk a little bit about like compliance. Almost, it's kind of a <laughs> you know, I don't know, kind of an icky word. But it it is. There, was there exam? Were there instances where teams were just like, you know what, we're not going to do it. It's too much work, whatever, or or you know, yeah. maybe not even too much work, <laughs> or like, our, we have a subset of users that like the work you've done does not apply to ours. I mean, I've heard all of the arguments in the past, but I just wondered how, yeah. like, what were people's, what were the incentives of teams or the leadership of teams to to direct uh, the the resources towards this kind of stuff? Like, how did that how did that happen? Yeah, so there was there's one example I can think of right off the bat where a team we we used the word leapfrogging. The team tried to leapfrog us and go directly to the engineers and get their design into the product. Um the problem with that and they they had already apparently convinced some some of their executives. this was like a separate product from the the flagship product. Um they convinced the executives it was a good idea and so now they were like, we have to do this because the execs said yes. The problem was it wasn't accessible. And uh-huh. Salesforce has to make things accessible, but also wants to make things accessible because it's the right thing to do. And if they hadn't had leapfrogged us, like we could have told them that. That And so it was sort of like a big example. Like, like even though you think you're a special case that isn't related directly to the core flagship product like you still need to like come talk to us because we can help you make sure that your designs are going to be accessible and compliant yeah so that that was sort of uh i hate for us to be like you know we told you you should have come talk to us (laughs) but like it really was that you know (laughs) yeah um and then on um the flip side of of that like another story was um in a more positive light like we were trying to move to a nav that was on the left and realized it it wasn't performing as well as we thought it was going to. Even though we had researched it, it just um, made sense to put it back on the top. And we had to roll this out to several products at once. And we were able to do it very quickly and effectively because we had the design system in place. So that was like a huge incentive when exec saw how quick that went in. Like they all put it in their their um, organizations, what we call a V2 mom. It's basically where you put your, um, you know, what metrics you're going to hit that year, what your values are and all that. And everything um, um, that we saw had the design system adoption as a bullet point, (laughs) (laughs) which was both scary and exciting. (laughs) V2 mom, man, I haven't heard that in a while. That's a, yeah. what was that? Vision, values, yeah, vision, values, um, methods, obstacles, and measurements. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hey, you know, frameworks. They uh, yeah, they give us a place to start at least. That's good. Yeah, I think it, it seems like it's like Salesforce's own way of doing like OKRs in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what it reminds me of. Huh. That's cool. Um. Yeah. No, I had a similar story when we were uh doing all the design work for the creative cloud transition that Adobe went through while I was there. And uh, one of the things that we were simply proposing was like, look, we need to have a single sign on, right? You need to have the one page where people come and put their username and password and then uh, eventually two factor auth. And we're going to use the same one everywhere. And we met with the API team that handled the Adobe accounts and they're like, yeah, we have 482 API clients across the organization and they all have their own code. <laughs> <laughs> so like we started doing the audit you know we had a team that went through all of that 
But I'll tell you what, like starting from a conversation with some API engineers and, and, a, and a small team of people doing an audit led us eventually to being at an offsite at a fancy hotel with all the executive vice presidents of all uh, across the company, everybody wow. like, and saying like, we, we have to do this. And the only way to do that kind of stuff at that level mm-hmm. of organizational change was just top down, like from the CEO saying like, yeah. look, every, Hey, this is going to be your prior. Yes. I know you have all of these goals and all of this stuff and all of these expectations for revenue and everything and put this on the list. And I remember like it was a tense few hours. Like it was a whole afternoon just, <laughs> and that's, and you know, like to get to like, Oh, style guides and oh, designers and developers and all that. But at some point, when it's when it, when it's a fundamental part of organizational change to say like this has got mm-hmm. to be a priority, it has to get to that level, you know. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because that is exactly I think another huge factor in why it worked for us is um, my my mentor at the time was the chief design architect. Uh, his name's Craig Villamore. He's he's not at Salesforce anymore, mm-hmm. but when he was there he was often meeting directly with Mark Benioff and like the other execs. And because I had his ear every time I would meet with him for the mentorship meetings, he knew exactly what we were doing and he was talking about that with them. And so then they knew what we were doing. And I think that was a huge piece of, of why things got bought in yeah. Um, so quickly. Yeah. 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 It's gotta be a priority. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and part of, you know, part of the, also the, um, the argument there is that every bit of inconsistent experience that people struggle with on our website that our customers struggle with is, you know, doing damage to the brand, you know, and that stuff mm-hmm. that might not turn up on a balance sheet specifically as revenue or, you know, loss, but, uh, but there is a long-term like decrease in value over time when people have mm-hmm. these experiences where like, Oh my God, I can't figure this thing out. Why is it different here versus this? You know, that, that sort of yeah. argument, and that's uh, it's a difficult conversation to have at an executive level sometimes, but um, sometimes it's not, so good. <laughs> All right, let's take another little break and talk about one of our good friends uh, who support the show, and that is ExpressVPN. All right, let's all do a little confession here. We all think we're immune to cybercrime. It's hard to imagine somebody trying to get a hold of our information, but the reality is stealing data from people like you and me using public Wi-Fi is an easy way for somebody with kind of, you know, unscrupulous morals to make a little bit of money. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your passwords and credit card numbers are vulnerable. There is something you can do to protect yourself, though, from cyber criminals, and that's start using a VPN. Specifically, start using ExpressVPN. It works by securing and anonymizing your internet browser. It encrypts your data hides your public IP address, and it's really easy to use. They've got apps that run seamlessly in the background of your laptop, your tablet, your phone. So you can turn on ExpressVPN by launching the app, tapping the big button in the middle of the screen, and that's it. It just works. Then you're free to safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. So uh, there was a survey done by Tech Radar. They rated... ExpressVPN, the number one VPN service. Uh, and if you sign up now, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you really can't go wrong. I have been using it for a number of months now. I've been traveling all over recently. It's been, uh, I've been in a bunch of airport lounges all over the world, it seems like. And 
I, it just feels really good to open up my laptop, log onto the system, and pop on uh, ExpressVPN, knowing that no matter what I'm doing, nobody else is going to be looking at my uh, my packets flying around. It really does give me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, I can you know I can log onto my bank, get some stuff done while I'm traveling, and not worry at all about it. Um, look, it it only costs about seven. It's less than seven dollars a month. You get the same level of protection that I have using ExpressVPN. If you ever use public Wi-Fi, want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need a VPN. So go to expressvpn.com/presentable to learn more. Um, you can find out how to get three free months uh, at expressvpn.com/presentable. Uh, you buy a one-year package, three months free. So that's e x p r e s s vpn.com slash presentable three months free thanks to express vpn for their support of presentable and all of relay fm all right so you uh you had some su- success with the uh salesforce uh design system the let me see let me call that up again it was the lightning design system um mm-hmm. and all of this documentation very public i think that's great what a resource right for people to get in and see how this stuff works uh was that difficult making this stuff public uh, yeah, I mean, Salesforce is a publicly traded company, so there were a lot of discussions on, um, you know, what what would be public and even, like, down to what the commit messages are that go public. And so mm. we actually had an internal version of the re, uh, the repository first, and then when we released it, it was basically kind of cleaned up <laughs> before it yep. went um, out. and. You know, we had to put legal licenses on every single file and in the comments at the top. Like we had to do a, a whole bunch of things. Like even if somebody wants to contribute, um, that's not part of the Salesforce team, um, they have to f- uh, sign like an agreement that I, I forget what the terms are in the agreement, but basically, you know, like something to the effect of, you know, this is at risk or mm-hmm. at your own risk or something like that. But um, like if there's all this process and stuff in place because um, it's open source, but I think it's, it's been awesome for them. And um, yeah, like so many third-party companies were building their own implementations and stuff that Salesforce didn't have the bandwidth for. So that was cool to see as well. That is cool. I did. I think the first thing, I would call a, a style guide or a design system is for a redesign we did at uh, Wired Magazine, like back in the 90s, probably like 1997, which was the first shift that we did from just static web pages on a web server into some yeah. kind of server-based technology. We use these things called server-side includes, where oh, you yeah. would, yeah, it was essentially it looked like an HTML comment, but when the mm-hmm. server would hit it, it would ba- you would basically say, put this, this file inside this file right here. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. we did that for all the headers and the footers and for little things like pull quotes and stuff like that. And then actually put HTML comments in the text documenting how it all worked <laughs> and then wrote an article on WebMonkey. I don't know if you ever saw WebMonkey yep, way back in the Web days. Monkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrote a series of articles on WebMonkey saying, hey, we did this redesign and it uses this new like dynamic web page technology. And if you want to learn how it works, like view source, because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all still in there. So, oh, yeah. I miss the view source days. <laughs> that was a lot simpler. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to view source on a mobile device now. Like it's, you know, like yeah. <laughs> the whole, like, how does this work? I'll just look. Um, 
but anyway, I thought it was funny compared to like looking now at this website I got in front of me here for the lightning system. Holy cow. Uh, we had a few <laughs> HTML comments and then a couple of WebMonkey articles. So, um, but this is, yeah, that's, this is really impressive. Now, can people use the lightning system as a foundation for their own design system? Is that the intent or like I it download a bunch could. of stuff? And, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's really designed for the Salesforce ecosystem. And so there's a lot of good stuff in there that people could use, but, um, and you know, if they're pulling in design tokens as part of it, then they could always rebrand it to look like whatever they want. Mm. But it just means there's probably going to be things that they need that won't be in there. Like, the, for the longest time, we resisted putting a carousel because we were like, nobody's using a carousel. We don't need it. And then I looked at it recently and I was like, oh, wow, they have a carousel now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess they finally needed it. <laughs> but it's it's more intended for developers of the Salesforce platform, whether they're internal or not, right? Like, because a lot of, there's right. a lot of third party, a tremendous amount of third party development that happens on top of Salesforce. And so yeah. I get it. I got it. All right. Yeah, but if, when we, go ahead. Sorry, uh, I was just saying when we were initially planning it, the way I had suggested that we would do it was um, I I called it skin and bones, but it was basically like let's build like the the crucial interactive um, structural pieces separately from the presentation of it, mm. so that people can use it for whatever they need. Um, and I think just like it came down to timing and launching that we we ended up not going in that direction. Um, but that the initial intent was to try to make it a resource anybody could use. Um, you know, goals change. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But yeah. there are a, a, a number of systems or platforms or whatever that people can use to get their design system kind of oh, yeah. off the ground. So you don't have to start from scratch. I mean, there is, you know, there's material design, there's bootstrap, uh, element UI is another one. So these are ways to get started. Yeah, you can like download them and then completely customize them. But at least there's a, again, like a framework. Yeah, I, there was a time where I would not have suggested material simply because like, well, I would suggest it in terms of like it's built built really well and looks great, but not in that if you want your app to look like anything other than Google, like maybe don't use it. But now they have done so much in theming and customization that, uh-huh. I, w- I wouldn't say that anymore. Like, it, I feel like anybody could, could use it for whatever purpose. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so build versus buy, I guess it's the old conundrum, right? What should we, ha- how should we get started? What's going to save us more time? What eventually will, um, yeah. yeah. And I, I have a hard time with telling people any particular starter kit. Cause I have found so many times that, Sometimes it slows you down to have a starter kit because then you just end up rebuilding or changing what's there anyway. So it's like, you know, trying to weigh the options of how much time would it take to just build this on our own versus using somebody else's thing and then refactoring it to pieces. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the very least, it can be a, you know, uh, a way to get started. You know, like mm-hmm. what, yeah. how, do, how do we even start to group these things together and like, you know, at mm-hmm. what level of detail and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it's good. Um, it feels like, I don't know, maybe it's just because the last couple of conferences I've been to, ha- there have been like at least half of the presentations had some component of design systems in there. It feels like there's quite a kind of community developing around this. It reminds me a little bit of like back in the years past of like information architecture. 
suddenly becomes this discipline and now people have the title and it and everybody's talking about it and it becomes a community and, and things like that conferences of its own and and stuff you, th- uh, you obviously as an advocate for all of this must really get a sense of that community building yeah like i i think this is a really you know hot topic right now because everybody's dealing with scale at a level that they weren't having to deal with before um, so people are excited about it. They're passionate about it. I even made the argument that maybe another reason it's so hot right now is because hybrids have a home in design systems. They get to use um, all their skill sets. Um, mm. So it's it's really exciting. Um, what what I do also see is some negativity of some people that are like, I've been doing this for years. We just didn't call it that. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's fine and all, but like, it's still exciting. It's still fun. Like, don't ruin it for us. <laughs> so you have essentially made a proper community. <laughs> and that you've got, now you've got both. Oh, we've been doing this forever. Oh, you kids these days. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Get off my lawn. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, you know, who's doing interesting work these days? Who should we be following and listening to besides you? Um, yeah, the, gosh, there's so many people. Um, just the ones that come top of mind. Obviously, Nathan Curtis writes on his Medium posts, I feel like, by the minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, of course, but he he writes really good posts. Um, Mina Markham is um, somebody I would definitely recommend as well. Um, she did the design system for the Hillary campaign, and now she's doing design systems at Slack. And she was also very involved in uh, the SaaS community, Um which was, uh, I think a lot of the people that were in the SaaS community are also in the design systems community. Um, Diana Mounter, um, she's leading up design systems and operations at GitHub, and she runs the local meetup in New York uh, um, as well. And let's see, who else? Gosh, there's just so many. <laughs> uh, Stu Robson is a good person to follow simply because he he's funny on Twitter, but also because he he um, does design systems and he manages the uh, design systems newsletter, um, email newsletter. And so he's always like keeping tabs on pretty much anything design systems related. He always is up to date on what people are writing and releasing and um, talking about. Fantastic. That's a great list. I will put links to everybody that you just mentioned down in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, so people can, uh, start to start to get the sense of who's out there and what's happening. Um, conferences as well. You have your own, don't you? Yeah. Uh, it's called clarity. This year is going to be the fourth year, but at the time that I started it, it was kind of funny because I initially I called it a style guide conference. Um, and then I changed it to design systems conference because I realized, yeah, style guide is kind of more of an artifact where design systems kind of speaks to the whole mm. ecosystem, which is beyond just the documentation and an artifact, but also the processes and tools and the people and the community and all that. So um, at the time, it was the first design systems conference. And now there's like three others that have um, popped up over the years. So, um, it's been really exciting to see all these dedicated events to this topic. And, um, the community is just so excited that it makes the conference attending, um, experience also very exciting because everybody's just so amped. 
That's fantastic. You said uh, that's in San Francisco in August? Yeah, it's going to be August 20 and 21, and then workshops on the 19th. Um, I actually just took a tour of the space earlier today, and it's got me like super pumped. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done a, yeah. a couple of conferences, and and, and that, that sense of like, oh, my God, it's going to be real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got to fill all these seats. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> but that's the other thing. It's it's almost doubling in size because of the venue capacity. So that's going to be really wild to see is even even more design system people. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah, it does really um, – does really feel like it's got a lot of momentum right now, and I think I think yeah, the the scale of growth, uh, the system, the, com- the complexity of systems, even and you know I've had a few conversations with people who do front end development work on this podcast, and and they're mm-hmm. talking about the uh, the unbelievable level of complexity that's you know that it takes to to build a modern website with all of right. the front end, um, you know the uh, the frameworks that are changing every day and who's using what now and it's you know trying to keep your head around yeah. all of that stuff, it really does take tools like this, doesn't it? Yeah, and with the exception of design tokens, I've I've been kind of pushing towards, um, well, the, the content that I've been trying to put out in the community has been more about people and process um, because, you know, tools change all yeah, the time exactly. and what people are using changes, but the way that you work with people, that's, that's the constant, so... Mm. Um, mm-hmm. that's always going to be something to, to focus on. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that's a great sort of point to end on is that it is really about this community and, and, uh, both connecting with other people doing design systems work, but also kind of learning the skills to connect with the people inside your organization that'll make a design system effective. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you have a Slack that people can join yep. uh, if they're interested yeah. and want to connect with other people. Yeah. So I have a link set up or a, a form set up where you can just drop in your email and it will automatically invite you. So that's at design.systems slash Slack. That was the most expensive domain name I ever bought, by the way, <laughs> design.systems. <laughs> um, but what's cool is, um, so if um, I think it's okay to go ahead and talk about this because um, there is there's a podcast episode about to come out about it as well. But for people that are familiar with styleguides.io, which has been this amazing resource of links and podcast um, episodes and presentations and videos and pretty much anything and everything that has to do with design systems, mm-hmm. um, we are actually going to be uh, bringing that into the fold as well. Mm. So um, because style guides is also sort of this term that's less used now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, the styleguides.io family and the design.systems family is going to merge and be under the design.systems umbrella. So, and that includes the podcast. So really excited about that. That's fantastic. And you were, uh, joining the podcast. You told me earlier before we, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler, but, um, it's about to go out anyway. So (laughs) fantastic. But yeah, I'm excited about that. That's great. Well, congratulations. Sounds like there's, like I said earlier, a lot of momentum going on here and Mm -hmm. um, it's all very exciting. That's cool. Um, Let's get some people following you. You're Gina, J-I-N-A at Twitter and over at Medium. That's good. Mm -hmm. And uh, sushiandrobots.com. Yep. Sushiandrobots.com. Okay, good. Links to all of that uh, in the show notes. Take take a look there. Uh, Gina, it's just been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Bean, and this was Presentable. <laughs>